Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, fellow music nerds. Welcome back to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a guitarist, songwriter, and producer originally from Vancouver, Canada. I love all aspects of making records. So I thought I'd make a podcast and bring in a slew of folks who've also made records in one way or another and yak about it with them. Each month, I'll be bringing you an in-depth conversation with a new guest. It may be a musician, a songwriter, a producer, or an engineer, but each of these people will have a fascinating story to tell about their lives and their involvement in the process of being a music maker and or a soul shaker. Thanks for joining me, and feel free to reach out to me through the podcast website at www.stevedawson.ca. And now, here's another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Greetings, everybody out there in quarantine land. Welcome to the show. This is week seven of season four, which is the lockdown season, and things are cruising along, and I'm so glad you could join me. Hey, before we get going too far, there is a new website for the show, brand spanking new. It's up and running, hopefully working, and it may cause some glitches in the podcast thing with Apple Podcasts. I'm not really sure. Hopefully not. Let me know if you have any problems. Um, It is at makersandshakerspodcast.com that's makersandshakerspodcast.com everything's going to shift over to there starting now Uh, the old site at stevedawson.ca will still function for a while but eventually i will just um, put a link up there to the new site so that's happening go check it out and as always i would love for you to follow our instagram page which is makersandshakerspodcast on instagram and also facebook and Twitter. Go for it. All right. This week on the show is an incredible guitarist from here in Nashville. Well, he's originally from Alabama, but he's lived in Nashville for many years, and he is a monster on the scene. His name is Guthrie Trap, and uh, we're going to be hearing a bunch from Guthrie. And before we get going, we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on with everybody these days. As you know that we do on this show, we take some callers and talk to people and find out what going on on the ground and uh, throw a few ideas around. If that is something that you're not interested in hearing, you can skip ahead. You guys have been really good about that. Like some people, a lot of people are really seem to be interested in this whole thing that's going on, this talking business at the beginning. 
And I thought it would piss off a lot more people than it has. It seems like people are enjoying it, so that's good. But if you don't want to hear it, you can skip ahead to about usually 17 or 18 minutes in is where the interview starts. So that's going to happen again here. So yeah, let's get down to it. So for me, I, I kind of feel almost a little bit settled into this whole thing that's going on. And I've kind of shifted my focus, obviously, because I was playing a lot of live gigs and touring a lot up until uh, this all started. And lately I've been working on this idea a bit more of doing this remote team recording with uh, a friend of mine from Toronto and a friend of mine from Vancouver. And we call it the Hen House Express. And we're working with a bunch of artists who send their uh, tracks of a song and we add bass and drums and a bunch of guitars and steel and stuff and I mix it and within a few days they get a track back and so that's kind of cool and that's kind of taken a bunch of my time and effort over the last few weeks and it's sort of settled into a thing like it's like a weekly schedule that we have between the tracks going up to Toronto for drums and then over to Vancouver for bass and then back down here where I work on them and it's kind of cool and I'm enjoying it. It's not like the living that I'm used to making, but it's something and it's, uh, and it's interesting and it keeps my chops going, I guess. I'm not really partaking in any uh, of the Facebook live things. Uh, it's just not something I'm super interested in doing. So I haven't really been doing that, but, but with all the studio work, I've been, I've been pretty busy so, and I'm healthy. So all those things make it a pretty successful week for me. Uh, here in Tennessee, there's a lot of talk with the music scene through the Musicians Union here um, about unemployment insurance. And uh, I can tell you firsthand, because I was encouraged to take part and try and um, get unemployment insurance, and it's a nightmare. And I, you know, I can't really even begin to tell you the maze of bureaucracy that you have to go through to try and get unemployment insurance. And after like hours and hours of, of working through the system from my end, uh, it either crashes or you get some weird error message. And you basically just like, I get this thing now every week saying, congratulations, you've been approved for $0 for unemployment insurance. <laughs> so I've now had seven weeks of $0 sent to me in a, in a letter. So there you go. You know, I'm not, um, I'm not begging for it. I'm, I'm not losing sleep over it. I'm not even expecting it, but apparently it's out there and evidently I'm doing something wrong, but I can imagine how frustrating it must be and there are people who have no avenues to make any extra money and they're kind of screwed and I just feel terrible for people right now and anyone having to navigate unemployment I don't know what it's like in other states but I can't imagine it's way better than it is here uh, but it is a nightmare here in Tennessee so that's all happening as well Okay, music recommendations. That's something I'm going to do every week. You're going to get two of them. And generally, one of them is going to be like a weird, obscure old classic to check out. And the other one's going to be something newer. Maybe it's brand new. Maybe it's 15, 20 years old. I don't know. So this week, you get a couple to check out. One of them is Jim O'Rourke. Do you guys know who that is? So he, he was in Sonic Youth for a while. He's very elusive, and he's really hard to find any information out about. And... Some of his records I've loved, and some of them I just don't really connect with at all. I've never really listened to any all that solidly, but oh my god, there's this record that is like currently my favorite thing on the planet, and it's called Bad Timing by Jim O'Rourke. There's no markings on the front. It's like a kind of a weird disco ball image on the, on the front, and there's no, no markings, no song titles, no times, no credits, no nothing. 
and I don't know that much about it, but it was like late nineties maybe. And it's just incredible. And I totally relate to the guitar playing. I've put out a, a couple records of guitar fingerstyle instrumental music, and it's eerily similar to this, even though I'd never heard it until last week, uh, some of it. And it's kind of inspired by like John Fahey and um, kind of hypnotic stuff. But then there's like these crazy moments where there's orchestras and trombones <laughs> coming in and all this really kind of um, atmospheric and also then really tension-filled other things. Highly recommended. Go check it out. Bad Timing by Jim O'Rourke. My other one for the week is the new Lucinda Williams record. What's it called? I don't even remember. I don't know. I have it. It's great. It's so killer and it's so rockin'. It's probably her most rockin' record and I've really been enjoying that. Um, I've, it's embarrassing that I don't remember what it's called, but it doesn't matter. Just look up the new Lucinda Williams record. The guitar sounds are totally wicked and her voice is just like a new level of raunchy raspiness so highly recommend it as well okay there you go go listen to those two records this week tell me what you think so every week i invite listeners to call in you can be a musician or you can just be a fan of music and i want to hear from people i want to hear what you're up to during this coronavirus time and how you're dealing with it and how you're being creative and just talking about it a little bit if you call in now, you will be entered into our fantastic contest with our good friends at Union Tube and Transistor, who are giving away a bean counter pedal, which is one of their um, series of almost every one of their pedals has a bean counter version, which is slightly scaled down um, aesthetics, but it functions the same and it's a kick-ass pedal. So if you call in this week, you'll be entered. I'm going to run this for two more weeks. That's it. Anyone that calls in will be entered. So do it. The number to call is 615-375-6318 and leave a message about what you're up to. It's really easy. You can also record it onto your um, voice memo and just email it to me at steve at thehenhousestudio.com. That would work as well. But if you want to call in, call in anytime, go straight to message 615-375-6318. And as you know, this show comes to you ad-free and I could really use your help right about now, especially doing this weekly things add up with all the hosting and editing and promoting and all that stuff that has to happen. I could really use your financial support if you have it. Uh, if you are unemployed and unable to kick in anything, that is totally fine too. Just kick back and listen. But if you're in a position where you enjoy the show and you want to help out, please do that. Uh, you can head over to makersandshakerspodcast.com and right on the top corner is a donate button and you can do a one-time donation or a monthly Patreon subscription. Either of those would be amazing and very helpful and I appreciate you so much. This week we had some financial contributors who I would like to thank personally Thomas McDonald, Steve Follett, Bruce Rowe, David Monahan, and Dave Rutch. Rooch? Rutch. Sorry Dave. Uh, I think I got I think I got you right there. Those people supported the show this week, and I can't thank them enough. So thanks, guys. All right, let's hear from some callers. We had a few this week. Let's hear from a couple right now. First off, we have Harold. Hey, Steve. This is Harold here in Toronto. Can't thank you enough for your podcast. <clears throat> I look forward to them all the time. I got to say, you know, first there was the uh, David Lindley one, which just blew my mind, and um, now it's Charlie Hunter, which is. You know, I've been laughing and learning all kinds of new stuff. And I think he's a great example of, of uh, how to adapt during these times of learning how to play and recontextualize. You're playing by yourself. <laughs> um, you know, I'm trying to do that. I, I, I've been 
playing around on my mandolin and revoicing songs and playing counter bass lines. Um, of course, Charlie, you know, like listening to Charlie, uh, Scott sing, just, I was crying laughing. That's just awesome. Um, anyway, thank you so much for all the great work that you're doing. Um, I will endeavor to get myself a mug. Anyway, stay well. Thank you, Harold. And yes, that experience of Charlie Hunter, Scat singing, it was sa uh, Satan Takes a Holiday, of course, that old chestnut. And uh, it's it's so good. And you open that can of worms. We just got to hear that again. So here's Charlie Hunter, Scat singing, Satan Takes a Holiday. Okay, so you know, there's a tune on that record called Satan Takes a Holiday. Something like that. Uh, I'm losing my mind because I want to finish that phrase. <laughs> and I had that when I was visiting my father in New York. I actually had that record. Oh, yeah. It really doesn't get much better than that. Thanks again, Harold. Thanks for calling in and thanks for listening. I appreciate you. We're going to take one more call from a past guest of the show. This is from Rory Block. Hey, Steve and all Steve's wonderful subscribers and podcast listeners. This is Rory Block, and I'm calling you from the beautiful state of Kentucky. Uh, we've been down here for months, as it happens, making the record, my new record, which is called Prove It On Me, and it is a tribute to a number of different early women of the blues that I think are not as famous and deserve all our respect and attention. Uh, of course, Ma Rainey and Memphis Minnie are also represented on the record, and we know that, that they are more well-known, but the others are really great uh, talents that I wanted to celebrate. So we did that, and uh, we were getting ready to come east, release the record on March 27th, getting ready to come east to do shows throughout April and May. Of course, they all got moved because of this, uh, unprecedented situation and uh, yes it's scary and yes it's deeply disturbing and we're we're sad you know it's it's easy to feel a different emotion almost every minute minute by minute we feel very great sorrow for all the people who died and knowing that there will undoubtedly be more losses and for their families i mean it's just devastating and we also feel tremendous hope for the people who have been recovering i have people that I know in other states uh, who have gotten the virus and who are now getting better. Um, so it's always disturbing to hear about it, but it's always really nice to know that people can recover and keep the faith. I think keeping the faith is really the most um, powerful uh, protection that we have is just keep on believing that things will work out. They will get better, send love, send um you know, healing thoughts and compassionate thoughts and hope that everybody does their very best with this quarantine thing, which is for some people, we're lucky to be in Kentucky because we have land. Uh, it's a farm and we have land to walk on and we get out every day with our dogs. And 
it almost doesn't change our way of living while we've been here recording. But we know that there are people stuck in small apartments and elderly people who can't necessarily all get help when they need it. So these are crisis times. But again, you know, we have to stay uh, faithful and, and believing that there will be a major improvement and it's coming about soon. I mean, look at past uh, pandemics and how they somehow faded away over time. So we just hope that day comes as soon as possible. I uh, wanted to let you know that we're staying in touch by doing uh, house concerts on Facebook Live. So we're just hanging in there and making, reaching out through music and sending love and, and really, really getting in touch with a lot of old friends. To that extent, I like to say this, that our hearts, our souls, and our spirits cannot be quarantined. Those things can't be kept in a room. Those things don't need to be kept in a room. We are completely, I think, in, in closer communication than we've ever been. That is the strange, um, the strange thing going on right now during, through the suffering and through the fear and through is this feeling of closeness and love that has come about out of necessity, really. And it's about the spirit. So let me uh, let you guys go. Sending love to everybody down there in the beautiful state of Tennessee and around around the world. Thank you, Rory Block. A great positive message there for you from Rory. How's everyone doing out there with the Facebook concert thing? It seems to be everywhere. There's a lot of people doing it. And um, it's kind of the new thing that's happening around. And I've watched some but they also make me a little uncomfortable, so I don't really watch them that much. I don't think they sound very good, or they don't sound very good on my setup anyway. And um, I'm not talking about Rory's, of course. Um, I'm just talking about the whole concept in general and how I feel about them. So there's the sound thing, which is a little weird. And then uh, I've, it also makes me feel a little uncomfortable for some reason, knowing that the artist like sees your name and kind of interacts with you there. I just don't really want that experience for some reason. So I kind of avoid them. I, I, I just don't really go to the Facebook Live thing for, for those reasons. Is that weird? I don't know. What do you guys think? Okay, on to this week's episode, Guthrie Trap. Uh, once again, I'm not going to give you a ton of background on him. You can look him up if you want. He has a great website, guthrietrap.com, with all kinds of information. He is a monster guitar player. And you know, I live in Nashville, and there's a lot of monstrously crazy good guitar players. But he's right up there with, like, in the top upper echelon of of those guys. And there's a really interesting breed of characters out there. And here's the way that I see it from someone that's lived here for a few years. I've been here for seven years now, so I, I know some of these guys and some of them I don't. But there's guys like Jack Pearson and Guthrie's in that camp who are and pat bergeson and some of these guys that are like mon like the some of the best guitar players on the planet literally they're monstrously good but they don't really do sessions mostly because they hate modern country music and they've just said you know what i don't want to sit there in the studio playing that crappy music and so they don't and i gotta say i really really respect that because um I know a lot of people in the country music world. I'm not involved in it myself either, but I know a lot of people that are either as a recording or a touring musician and pretty much everyone hates it. <laughs> like they just don't like the music that they're involved in playing because it's pretty lame. So I have a 
problem with that. Like I understand that they're making a living and I understand some of them are making a really good living. So all the power to them. But at the same time, it's like, man, if you hate the music, that's a bit of a nightmare to have to show up every day. I'm sure there's people that love new country and play on those sessions. Um, but I don't know if I've met any yet. <laughs> so there's all these players here in town who have just said like, no, don't call me. Cause I'm just not going to, I don't want to do it. And so they find other things to do. And Guthrie has found, you know, between like he's, he does his own original music. He does gigs with other people. He plays with John Oates a lot, which we'll talk about on the show. Uh, he does a lot of other interesting things and he does do some sessions, but not like commercial country stuff. I think the, the closest he got to that was playing on like pistol Annie's, uh, fairly recently. But other than that, he just doesn't go into the studio for, for country sessions. And then there's this other breed of players like Tom Bukovac, who are monster players as well. And they totally do do the sessions and that's kind of all they do. And they make great living doing these sessions but I don't think they like the music very much, but they don't care. They're just like, this is what I do. This is my job. I'm like a, I'm like a plumber. I'm going to show up and do my thing. And you got to respect that too, but they're totally different outlooks on life and music. And so that was cool. And I wanted to talk to Guthrie about that and find out what makes him tick and where he came from and some of the, some of the great work that he's done and his recent adventures with John Oates and, things like that. Let's get going. Without further ado, this is my conversation with Guthrie Trap. Yeah, man. Sorry. I looked at our tech, our email thread. We've been trying to do this since November. <laughs> I know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It got a little hairy. I, I'm a, you know, I, I, I'm a musician as well. So I, I've been on the road a bunch and, and I've, I banked a bunch of them up and I haven't been doing them really. And then, uh, you know, I was on tour uh, about a month ago and this happened. And so I came back and I've decided to ramp up the podcast to a weekly like I used to do it monthly so I'm doing it weekly now and and just um, oh, cool. packing them all in because everyone's at home and you know it seems like a yeah. good time to do it I've had a, a bunch of people on this show from you know the first generation of Nashville studio players guys like Charlie McCoy and Norman Blake and um uh but not many not many younger folks you know like from yeah. a, from the current generation and I know you do a lot of different things you do touring and solo gigs and teaching and and um, all kinds of different activities. But maybe we could start by talking about your studio work a bit. And uh, first of all, like how much you're doing these days. And, um, you know, I know you've done a lot in the past. I'm not sure if you're currently doing as much anymore, but m maybe we could just start a little bit with talking a little bit about um, like what you're doing these days, studio wise. Yeah. You know, uh, it's funny you mentioned Charlie McCoy. I just got a really nice letter from him in the mail. I played on his last record that he did. Nice. Which was really, really awesome, man. I just sit, you just sit back and watch that guy work, and you, you learn so much, man. Um, you know, it's it's funny. You know, you mentioned the younger guys too. I, uh, I, I, it's it's really it's really wild, man. I, I I always keep going back and listening to music that's that's you know thirty years old instead of you know keeping current with 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 what's new. And uh, I have that problem too. Yeah, a lot of the old guys, man, they it's it's like I feel like a lot of the younger generation, maybe just here in Nashville, I don't know, but it's like, oh, those guys aren't current anymore. Those guys aren't working as much as they did and blah blah blah. And I go, man, those are the those are the guys I want to hang out with and those are the guys I want to work with. Mm -hmm. And you know, I don't care 
how relevant they are to what's going on in Nashville right now because I don't like the music that's that's popular in Nashville right now. And the fact that that I, you know, have been really lucky to work with musicians and, and artists and 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 uh and and keep my integrity pretty high because of being stubborn and and not going out of my way to learn something that I don't like that 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 doesn't move me as a musician. And so I ended up gravitating towards the music that I grew up on and playing, you know, American roots music, funk, blues, R&B, jazz, soul, country, real. When I say country music, I mean real country music. Yeah. You know, and and I've never been a fan of of real, you know, commercial country music. It just doesn't it doesn't resonate with me as and. And truth be told, it doesn't resonate with well, a lot of musicians, you know. And so um, I don't make my living by playing on records in Nashville. I, I never I never looked at that as as something that was going to pay my bills. It was like, you know, I've been lucky to record with a bunch of great people, all the legends that live here and, you know, less of the younger guys and more of the old older legend you know i would consider legends now the guys that i whose names i was seeing on records when i was growing up and guys that still work a ton but the older cats you know and um i just like being around those guys you know it, you, you 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 don't become that cool until you've been around that long <laughs> you know i know Charlie McCoy is definitely in that camp, and I had Lloyd Green on this show as well, and and he's right. He's a good friend of mine, and I've been I've been able to work with Lloyd Green in the studio probably more than any other young person in Nashville, and we became really good friends. And that that came from being on the road and to, and recording a lot with Jerry Douglas, right? And so that's how we met. So these guys, it's it it to be honest with you, man, I, I'm I'm really grateful, and I don't I don't mean this to sound arrogant in any way, but I the fact that I've kind of stuck to my guns over the years has been, has enabled me to gain the respect of the people that I really respect. Of course. Yeah. You know, and that to me is what I can take to my grave. You know, I'm, I'm not worried about winning guitar player of the year or playing on a ton of like pop country or bro country or commercial country records. Yeah. I would rather be able to say, Hey man, look, I, I, I played the music that I wanted to play. I got to work with some legendary Nashville producers and and you know and session musicians and some really great young artists as well. But I mean that is what I can sleep well at night with and I'm able to make a really good living here and and we'll get into that too I'm sure but you know as all this has morphed over 20 years of being here but you know, I I just I, I I never was good at learning something or being interested in something that I then I that I didn't want to. So, like I said, my stubborn uh, German heritage has uh, <laughs> has, has kind of paid off. I think in the long run. Yeah, you know? yeah. So that's a really interesting point, and um, you know, something that I've noticed from being here too, because I'm in the same boat. Like I I basically have zero interest in in modern country music. I love old country music. I'm just not involved in that world. It doesn't bother me and they and and I don't bother them and I just do my own thing and and it seems like that's sort of what you're doing too but you are like very well known and respected around this town and so I'm wondering like do you does it come up a lot for you like do you get asked to do a lot of sessions and you're just sort of like eh it's not really my bag and and pass it on to somebody else or do they just ignore you I don't okay I I really don't anymore because I've, I've kind of I've kind of you know 
in a way, I think people know now they're like, hey, man, he just he doesn't do that. And, and he's not the right guy for it. I mean, I'll tell somebody right away if uh-huh. if somebody goes and, and, and just to preface all this, I'm not in any way bashing Music Row at all. I have sure. a lot of friends that work on Music Row that I that I love. I've got, you know, a lot of friends at BMI and, and all the, you know, you know, all the different organizations in town. I have a lot of friends that that uh, that work in 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 those in those genres. Right. That that just personally is not my thing, you know, and and it and it really genuinely isn't. I'm not just saying that because that's like the cool, you know, underground Nashville thing to say it. it I really am not a fan of that music. Uh, just like I'm not a fan of of heavy metal from the '80s, you know, I, I, those are things that I just don't I don't gravitate towards. It wasn't the way I was mm-hmm. brought up on music and and remains to be that way. So I just want to say I'm not I'm not bashing that just to bash it. And 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 I have a lot of friends that 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 are you know working on Music Row every day. So it's not that you yep, know what I mean. Yep, I totally know what you mean. But I'm getting away from the question. What was the first? Que- what was the second question? Well. You know, I, I just wanted to know if 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 you were still being asked to do stuff like that, or like what I find here in this town is like you have to really de- like dedicate yourself to a certain scene to be able to incorporate right. into that world and and to get that kind of work. And so if you're if you're kind of lukewarm about the whole thing and just don't want to be doing it, I, I just wondered if you know if it's a matter of you having to sit there and because you're a well known guitarist in town, do you have to sit there saying like nope, 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 or 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 if they just stop calling you? Yeah, they pretty much just stop calling. And and you know, I mean, there was a run back in like you know, I don't even know, man. I mean, ten ten years ago, maybe at this point, yeah, where you know people were calling for that stuff, and and I just. They, I think they knew that I wasn't really into it, and 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 it wasn't fair to them either. And so I started right. just saying, "Look, man, you know it. It's I'm not the guy to do it. You know, call these other guys that are that are going to come in and and nail this this stuff and get all the different sounds and all that. That's another thing. You know, I never worked at being a chameleon musician. I mean, I you know I I can play a, a I'm pretty versatile as far as you know, like the genres that I mentioned, like if it's, you know, even, you know, even anything like world music, bluegrass, funk, R&B, soul, blues, uh, you know, rock and roll before the 80s, you know, stuff like that. I'm fine with it. But if it gets, if it gets, you know, in in some other lanes other than that, or like real hardcore bebop jazz or something, those just aren't my, those aren't my strong points. And so, you know, I think people kind of figured out like, hey, man, you know, he's he's got his thing going that he does. And, and like he's not the cat to call for this stuff. Uh, if it's if it's playing on. Oh, God, who, who what's a good example? You know, like um, something with Garth Fundus or Frank Liddell or some of these guys that like when you go in there to record with them, as soon as the phone rings, you know, it's going to be a great band. It's going to be great songs. It's going to be a great singer. Uh, you know, high integrity music, you know, somebody like Ashley Monroe or, you know, I played on that Pistol Annie's record that Frank did and and like some a bunch of stuff with Garth Fundus, who I've known for a long time from the days that I was playing down on the Gulf Coast. And so and Cowboy Jack Clement when he was around. I mean, and these are yeah. these are all guys that the younger generation now would would they'd be like Jack Clement. Well, you know, he hadn't done anything since, you know, the 70s. And you know, I just don't care about that. That that's right. that like being relevant to me has no. I, that's the last thing that I ever think of ever. 
and to be honest with you, I'm so grateful and so lucky, especially in where we're at right now. And I mean, from the tornado to the virus to uh, just surviving as a musician in 2020 in Nashville. I mean, all those things, you know, I'm having more time to sit and reflect on all that stuff now than I ever than I ever have. I mean, those thoughts yep. cross your mind, you know, and so. I'm just really grateful every day that I that you know I survived the tornado. My family's healthy. You know, we went to Africa and flew back through five major airports. Oh my god! Four flights, thirty six hours, right in the middle of the pandemic. And so I thought, Jesus Christ, we'll be lucky if we get back to Nashville without all getting the virus. Well, man, we were really smart. We were vigilant. We I looked at it as a like a mission to get me and my family back to Nashville without catching this fucking virus. Mm-hmm. And we did, and we're healthy, and we're good, and I'm just really grateful. But I'm really grateful for the fact that that you know, uh, and people go, man, you've been so smart, and you've looked at this like a business, and you're you've got all these different things going on with your rental property and your online stuff, and like you, it's like you you know you're into all these things, and it's like, man, I've never had a plan to do any of this. I just <laughs> I, I go where the work is, I go where opportunities are that I feel like I can fit in. And and I just try to survive. And man, if something comes up that's that's great, I try, I try to get involved in it. And so, you know, I've also lo- I've also lost a lot of gigs because I didn't sing and stuff like that. That you know, I would love to have done like Emmylou Harris and Sam Bush and all these different people. They're like, man, we'd love to have you, but you got to be able to sing some harmony. And I'm like, well, that's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not everything has been like you know, not everything that I get involved with is is you know, works, but, but I've, I've done a lot of things and met a lot of people here and it's been a it's it's been a hell of an adventure, but I never really had a long-term plan. You know, I, I I'm kind of like, I kind of go on blind faith. And like I said earlier, I, I just try to go where the good, the good people are, the good music, you know, not everything I've done in Nashville has been perfect. Uh, but you know, it's, it's part of the ride, right? Let's talk a little bit about what what's out there these days as far as like work basically, because like back in the day when we're talking about people like Lloyd green and, and um, Charlie McCoy and all these guys, like they were literally every day getting up and going into the studio and like playing on killer records all day, all day, every day. And it just like never ended until the seventies, basically. Uh, That's not, that doesn't exist anymore. So uh, like, I know you're doing teaching and, and uh, gigging with a lot of people and doing live stuff, but can you tell me, like, you know, um, what is the climate like for a guy like you who's not interested in being in the the treadmill of the of the Nashville country thing? Like, what do you what do you have to do to survive these days? Well, yeah, you're right. Back then, all the way up until like the early and mid two thousands, it was like a it was like a Garden of Eden, like this lush forest <laughs> for for people working in Nashville because records were still selling, and so you know. Um, yeah, so that that's pretty crazy to think about how busy those guys were back then. Yeah, uh, so for me, you know, I I I did, you know, I was doing some sessions and stuff here and there back then, and I was touring a lot when I first moved to Nashville. For, let's go back twenty years. When I first moved here, I played with Don Kelly on Broadway for four years, and the first two years of that, I was pretty much, you know, playing with him four nights a week down downtown, uh, six to ten every night. So. Man, my, at Roberts. Yeah, and you, man, in that in that gig, your chops get really good because you're I bet you're playing so much music. You're playing a lot of up tempo stuff, loud ballroom, nothing better than that, right? So, 
So I'd come from that world. So I kind of fit right into that band. I was doing that on the Gulf Coast for, you know, a long time before I moved up here. So it kind of was a perfect fit. You know, about a year and a half, two years into that Don Kelly gig, I started getting, um, you know, Kenny Vaughn kind of helped me. John Randall kind of helped me. Hey, mm-hmm. they knew Patty Lovis was, was looking for somebody. And me and another guy who I won't mention his name, we auditioned. And I ended up getting the gig. So I toured and recorded with Patty Loveless for on and off for like six, seven years. Amazing. And so that was a really great. So that was like the, that was the first time in my life I'd ever stepped on a tour bus. I, I went out and started working with Patty. And that was like, you know, that was a great like um, that was a great street cred gig as long as 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 well as the Don Kelly band. I mean, mm-hmm. it, I walked in to Nashville and, you know, immediately walked down to Roberts and within a couple months he goes hey John uh, Johnny Highland's leaving this gig you can have it if you want I said absolutely and so then I was immediately in kind of the thread here that I that I needed to be in without even knowing it you know I just knew to go down and check out Don you know yep and so you know guys like Kenny Vaughn hanging out and Dave Rowe and and all these guys you know I kind of was already getting into the the vein here that I needed to be in, you know? And so yep. that morphed into the Patty Loveless gig. And then that immediately gave you some, some street cred and respect, you know, and, and all this is subjective, you know, uh, we, we can't say that, that, that Florida Georgia line is, is better or worse than Amy Lou Harris or Patty Loveless, but let's just be honest. I think it is. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. I think those people ha- are, are are more talented and and better um, singers and and have more musical integrity than those other guys do. And you can edit that out. I don't really give a shit. No, I'd like to keep that in. Thanks. Yeah, and and so anyway, and so you know, like, I, and so a perfect example. I mean, the, the the music that I was raised on, and that goes all the way back to my family being big fans of real music and. And it all just kind of worked out the way it was supposed to, because I didn't fight it really either. There was a couple of years here where I tried to chase the session thing, and I was like hanging out with the guys that, and we're all friends. I mean, man, I'm friends with mm-hmm. all the guys that are the top dudes in town, and we all have a mutual respect for each other. They know what I do and don't do, and I know what they do and don't do. Yep. And and that's why we're all able to be here and work is because we don't all do the same thing. I mean, if you if you move to Nashville and you want to sound just like the guy that's working the most, you're you're missing the point because he's already here. Right. You know, and right. he's been here a long time and he's, he, you know, those guys are such ferocious musicians that, you know, it, you better have something else because those guys are already king of that, of that castle, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so the Patty Loveless gig, I'm jumping around a little bit, but the Patty Loveless gig morphed into, uh, she was kind of coming off the road and I'd played on a couple of her records and, and uh, got to work with Albert Lee and and her husband Emory Emory Gordy and Russ Paul and Owen Hale and all these amazing. all these amazing musicians and this was just a couple years after I I'd lived here so I was freaking out you know and and so then um, uh, and it was and I was able to pay my little five hundred and fifty dollars a month rent on Music Row for a couple of years so I was thrilled so so then fast forward about six or seven years I'm starting to get a little bit more established here and then. Uh, but I'm still touring pretty much to to make a living. And so there was a couple of times where Patty said, hey, guys, I got to take a break. And then, well, shit, you, you know, I'll look at it like this. If you're here for 15 years and you just play with an artist on the road 
as soon as they take a break or they want to retire or they get sick or they get pregnant or whatever happens to them, you're rewinding back to the very first day you moved here unless you've been yep. building something along the way. And it's really hard and it's and it's and it's and and it's not the most obvious thing sometimes for people to to do, especially 10, 15 years ago when we had no idea we'd all be teaching on online, you know? Right, right. And so or or whatever online. And so uh streaming and all that, you know. So Anyway, so then that Patty Loveless gig ended, and then I, I was down at uh, Todd Sharp's amp shop when he was still in Franklin, and I was getting an amp looked at or something, and I was just kind of standing there uh, shooting the shit with Todd, who's one of my favorite people on the planet, and uh, and a total badass himself. Um, yeah, he is. Total, total badass. And so uh, my phone rings, and it's a non uh, it's a number that I don't have saved. And so I'm kind of the opposite of everybody else. Back then I was answering the phone calls that I didn't recognize and not answering the ones that I did. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause it's always, it could always be like some random work, you know? So, yep. um, so I picked up the phone and, and the voice on the other end goes, Hey Guthrie, it's Jerry Douglas. I was just wondering if you'd be interested in playing some guitar with me. And I said, well, absolutely, and I almost dropped the phone because he's been a you know a hero of mine, like Sam sure. Fish and Bela Fleck and all those guys since Mark O'Connor and all those cats since I was a kid, right? Since I was born, and and so I almost dropped the phone. Well, Sam Bush had given him my name, and because uh, I've known Sam for a long time, and he knew I was in Nashville, and and it hurt me play at a festival we opened up for Sam Bush Band, and they were like, okay, well Guthrie now is a guitar player, and so. So I ended up touring and recording with Jerry Douglas for about six or seven years. We tr- went all over the world and did all this stuff, opened up for Paul Simon for three months and played America, uh, Radio City Music Hall with Paul Simon. And like, and so I'm kind of like, wow, this is awesome. So, you know, getting some tour, getting some touring and some session work under my belt at this point, uh, working with Jerry. Uh, well then the, the Jerry gig phased out. I don't know if he went, he was on and off with Allison Krauss too every other year. So that was yeah. like, we had to restart and, and everything. So that finally came to an end where he kind of changed up the band and went with some different stuff. And, um, and so at that point I was pretty much, uh, I, I was working more in the studio at that point. So I kind of was like, um, okay, I think I'm, I'm done with this on the road stuff. I've, I've done this a lot, you know? I'd, I'd had a pretty good run with Patty and Jerry, and uh, and in the and, and in the back burner, while well, while all that was happening, I was developing relationships with uh, people like Sean Camp and and like you know getting to know Pat McLaughlin and all these guys that that are like were some of my favorite songwriters and stuff like that, and just kind of you know I'm out every night, so I'm networking and and I'm meeting all these people and and just kind of establishing myself here more and more and more. And then I started working with Sean Camp, and then that turned into working with Jimmy Stewart. And we, we we have these great bands that we play with that are that are perfect platforms for everybody in the band to be able to do what they love to do and what they're really good at, you know. And you love the music too. And we love the music. I mean, Sean Camp and Jimmy and and Pat and some of those guys. Badass. I don't get to work with Pat as much, but we've had our, our paths have crossed uh, a lot of times, and we're friends and and all that kind of stuff. But. You know, getting to be friends with Kenny Greenberg and Michael Rhodes and doing little side projects with these guys and and getting to befriend, you know, Glenn Wharf and um, and um, uh, Richard Bennett with Mark Knopfler and getting to kind of like get more into hanging with those guys. And, and, and you know, I, I feel blessed because I'm I have the respect of the guys that I look up to the most on this planet, you know. 
And just a couple months ago, getting to be friends with Robin Ford and sitting in with him at the five spot for six or seven songs. He lives right down the street. We have coffee. I'll run into him in my neighborhood. I mean, it's just this town, after being here for 20 years, there's something that happens to me every day that reminds me why I'm still here and not living in the Southwest somewhere, you know? (laughs) I feel the same. Which I would love to to live in the Southwest, but... uh, or the or the Pacific Northwest, but you know they they don't have music scenes there, so that's why we're here, man. I mean, other, if Nashville didn't have a music scene, this would be like another Birmingham or something, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it would be just another kind of mediocre town in the South. I totally agree. Yeah, I, I moved here from from Vancouver, Canada, in uh, about seven years ago, so I I know all about living in cool places that have no music scene. <laughs> yeah, well, man, that's that's honestly when I you know I didn't I I, I didn't. Uh, you know, my brain wasn't working fast enough to remember that you were in Nashville. And when I first heard your voice, I, I knew you sounded Canadian. <laughs> I just, I, it just didn't click right away. It's a giveaway. Uh, okay. So you've opened a lot of cans of worms here and I want to, I want to ask you about some of this stuff, but so one of the things that jumps out to me is, is, um, uh, and I want to go a little back a little further than this, but you talked about the, the Patty Loveless gig and I would love to hear about, um, what your experience with was her particularly in the studio, because that would have been uh, early 2000s, I guess. And yeah. uh, I would love to hear what the process was like specifically recording with her and like at that era in country music, which is so different from what it is now. Yeah. Um, you know, what was the studio experience actually physically like? Like, were you in there with recording with a full band at the same time? Were you overdubbing? Uh, give me a little taste of what that was all about. Yeah. And so, uh, so I'll, I'll come at this, you know, as I do with most questions, I'll I'll come at it, you know, I'm going to get to the point, but it'll take me a second. (laughs) So so with that, with that kind of music and, and, and even recording with Garth Fundus and Frank, uh, and, and, and David Ferguson and some, and Mark Howard and guys like that here, uh, and Ferg was, you know, one of the guys that worked with Johnny Cash on a ton of stuff, really, really uh, heavy cat here that a lot of people, you know, that are, that I consider, you know, my heroes, they know of him. He might not be the most well-known person, but a total Nashville legend in my mind. And I get to work with, with those guys a lot too. So all those people, what they, what they all have in common and, and Patty's husband, Emery Gordy would produce her records and play bass on them and sit at the console all at the same time. And so, you know, he was a total badass too. Played with Emmylou Harris in the hot yeah. and played with Elvis Presley. Yeah. You know, a pretty heavy, pretty heavy cat. And so um, the thing about recording with all those people across the board is, like I said earlier, the artists are going to be great. The songs are going to be great. They're going to have real musicians in there playing. I've never recorded with a, a track maker or any kind of anything like that. The most, the, the most, um, uh, that they'll use is a click track, maybe, and most of the time not, you know? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so we would go in and man, like, uh, like, like most of these things, like I, like I'm saying across the board, you, you go in, uh, either the, the songwriters uh, sitting there, like if it's Sean camp or somebody, he's going to have an acoustic and he's going to play the song. And, uh, and, and you listen to the song, he might play like an iPhone, uh, demo or something if if he had an arrangement that he was unsure of or or something like that. I'm just using this as a broad example. This could yeah. this could pertain to anybody. But then with Patty, like since she you know she didn't really play an instrument 
that much. So her and Emery would come in. We'd all be in the studio, you know, in the, mm-hmm. in the control room. And they would have like a real rough demo. I mean, real rough, you know. Okay. And uh, almost to the point where you couldn't hear the guitar a lot of times. And so, okay. you know, and then they'd have, they'd have charts. Emery would have charts and stuff like that. And we would, we would approach it in a, in a very live way. We'd go in and we'd all, we'd all play the song and he would play the bass and hear what everybody's doing. And when the, when the, you know, when we were finished playing, you know, working out the tune, he would be able to, you know, hear what everybody was doing in the, in the, the rundown while he was playing the bass while he was sitting at the console and producing, he could hear everything. And so uh, then we would make a couple little adjustments, but with guys like that that are so good, you know, a couple takes and and you're you're done. And then, you know, somebody might come in and do a little, you know, little overdub, you know, maybe like a rhythm guitar part or something like that. But man, not not sitting there building a track at all. I mean, you're cool. You're live. It's live, you know. In that era, it seems to me like most artists were, uh, you know, getting put in a situation with studio play, like session players. And I'm not saying that you weren't one, but at that point, you were kind of a young oh, kid. Yeah. Oh, I'm uh, scared to death. Yeah. <laughs> but how did you not get bumped for like some some heavy older session cat that had been around forever? Well, those guys were there too. Okay. But but not. But not on the guitar. I mean, I, there was like, say, I would walk in like the first one we did. You know, I'll never forget this because I had food poisoning so bad. Oh God! And like, here's my first like major label Nashville session with like the seasoned pros. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm like, obviously and totally the new, the new young cat, right? And I'd had food poisoning, man. I ate something here in Nashville that absolutely, completely fucked me up. Ugh. And I mean, for like nine days, I had this. And so uh, it was like a foodborne illness. It wasn't like normal food poisoning that you're over with like the next day. It, it was like really bad. And so I was literally at the point of almost going to the doctor and it stopped. But but this was all happening right in the middle of this session. So I have to go down to we recorded at the sound kitchen in Franklin when at, when it was up and running. And uh, and so we we get down there and I'm literally man, like I'm 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 you know, like my stomach is torn inside out. I feel like shit. I haven't slept, Ugh. you know, and here I am down here and I walk in and it's like Albert Lee's sitting there and, and all these guys. And I go, Oh my God. And so, but you know, Patty was so cool that, and Emery also that they, she would use a couple people from the band on her, on her records. Like she would use some of the band on her records. And it was a mixture of like the, session pros and then the yeah some of the people in the band like they want she wanted to give people a, a a chance and help them with their careers and so that's cool she probably didn't have to do that right she totally didn't have to do that she could have easily said hey the band's the band and the session's the session right yeah yeah and uh and it used to be like that i think a lot more i think nowadays people are starting to you know people are starting to um you know the the gap is being bridged big time like the, you know, a lot of like we'll go out with John Oates, uh, who I will to who I do tour with now uh, when he works, which is just right. It's just a couple, you know, a month or so out of the year, which is perfect. And uh, that's a whole other story, man. I only got about halfway through my 20 years here on on that last <laughs> yeah, I know. That last rant. But uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, you know, those 
those guys are those guys are cool. If they see somebody that has something, it doesn't have to be the biggest name for them. Right, right. So, like on a session like that, like with Patty Loveless, were you and you were and you were a youngster and and not like a seasoned session guy? By any means, uh, I'm still not did a you, seasoned session guy. Did did you just roll in like with your live rig and stuff, or were you were you putting stuff together? Did you have like was there any direction as far as like a sound or anything, or did you just kind of like bring in your stuff that you were touring with and that was that? Yeah. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So that's kind of the thing. Like, those, those people knew not to take some, you know, not to take me and, and try to get me to do something that I'd that I couldn't do like they're right. They're, they're smart enough to know who to call for the, for the, for the, you know, who's the right person to call for the, for the right project. And so that's a big thing that I learned about these producers in Nashville. If they're really smart and they're really great, they know who to call for the, for the project. I mean, it's a casting thing. I mean, you know, don't call an eighties rock guy for a, 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 you know, fifties country shuffle, you know, right. Right. It's pretty common sense when you think about it, but but you also have to know, you know, you have to have those people's numbers, you know, and know and know who's going to, you know, who's going to be the right person. So they knew not to get me in there and try to get me to do a bunch of stuff that I that they didn't see me do in, in the band. And, and the kind of they probably kind of knew my background. I might have, you know, I might have talked about being a big fan of bluegrass or something like that. I mean, there is a reason why they called me in there, you know. Mm hmm. And, uh, and so, yeah, it was a great, it was a great experience. I mean, I was pretty much scared to death and, and I had, I got, I got some direction from, from some of those guys on, on stuff, but you know what? I just took, uh, my point of, of that was that I just took what I, what I, what I would use on anything and the stuff that I'm still using today. I took like a, uh, an old deluxe reverb, uh, a little pedal board with, with some pretty basic effects on it. And then a couple guitars, you know, I probably took a telly and like a, a Strat and a 335 or something, you know? What else do you need? Maybe a baritone. I don't know. What about your, what, like, what about approaching <clears throat> a song in the studio? Like, you've been playing with Don Kelly, you've been playing with Patty live, um, but at, at that point, you probably didn't have a lot of studio experience at all, and it's a really different yeah. thing. So uh, what were some of the early lessons you learned, and, and were there some some situations that, that you got into with her or with anyone else at that point where you just like, you really had to learn a tough lesson by being in the studio. Yeah. I, I, I learned some tough lessons, but it was less people telling me and more me telling myself. Right. 
You know, I've had a couple prickly guys kind of, you know, throw some darts at me in Nashville. Two or three really good times where I've listened really, really you know, and uh, where I really listened to them and, and where, it, you know, things that sunk in and things I won't forget, you know. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. I'm, glad, I'm glad they did that because I, I respond well to that, you know. I don't respond well to people telling you how great you are, <laughs> you know. Because we are, if you're smart and you're self-aware and you're and you're really coming into this music thing honestly, you're going to be beating yourself up enough. In you know, that's right. It, we're our, we're already our our own worst critics. But if somebody that I really respect, you know, gives me some criticism or something like that, man, I definitely take it to to heart. But I'll tell you, one of the things that that was to my benefit was when I was really young, learning how to play. Uh, uh, you know, acoustic guitar, electric guitar, mandolin on the Gulf Coast. I was really lucky to have a a, a connection to this place called the Floribama Lounge and Package on the Gulf Coast. It was right on the Florida Alabama state line, right on the beach, and that's where I'm from. And so, uh, one of my family members down there has been the bookkeeper and accountant for that club for longer than I've been alive, and so we knew the owner really well. And he was a big music fan, and um, they had music at that club on three different stages, uh, 365 days a year, started at 11 a.m. and went till 3 o'clock in the morning, much like the scene on Broadway. Okay. Music round the clock. Yep. And so he also did this thing, uh, and there was a lot of songwriters out there and a lot of really good ones, and some Nashville guys that retired down there, and you know, Larry Brown and Garth Fundus, I met down there. He had a house on Ono Island and all this stuff. And so got to meet all these characters. And so he had the Frank Brown International Songwriters Festival down there that brought tons of Nashville songwriters down to the Gulf Coast. And, uh, you know, we loved a good destination festival, you know, like I would much, sure. I would much rather go, you know, down to New Orleans for French Quarter Festival than, than to Toledo, Ohio for you know, whatever. I mean, you know what I mean? We, we love, a good, yep. we love a good destination city, right? Oh yeah. So who, who in Nashville is not going to want to come spend two weeks uh, down at the Gulf of Mexico and go fishing and all this stuff. So it's kind of like the BMI Key West Songwriters Festival. We all love to go to Key West because it was just a lot of fun. And so all these guys would come down. I got to, uh, I got to play with Hank Cochran, Red Lane, Mickey Newberry, um, all these guys got to meet Carl Jackson and know him and Larry Cordell and Jerry Sally and all these, like the list goes on and on and on of people that I met at the Frank Brown International Songwriters. So I was like the young guy that was playing with this guy, Gove Scrivener, who brought me to Nashville for my first major recording. This was in like the mid to late 90s, way before I even moved here. I actually did come up and record with with Gove and, and we did a couple records up up here where I got to record with uh, Nancy Griffith and John Prine and got got to work with um, Bill Vorndick and Pat McInerney from uh, um, Nancy Griffith's band and you know stayed at his house and drank beer at Brown's Diner when I was you know 16 years old and and uh, got to meet a bunch of Nashville characters and that was that was in the late 90s uh, mid to late 90s I'd say like 96 mm-hmm. 97. And, uh, and that was my, that was my real first entrance into Nashville, which really kind of paved the way for all this stuff. But I got to meet all these songwriters and work with them and jam with them until five o'clock in the morning at the beach house. And, and I'd be playing at the table with all these guys in like a writer's round kind of thing, jam and like Red Lane or Hank Cochran or Mickey Newberry or one of these guys, like one of the like heavy, heaviest dudes ever. 
they they would say stuff like, "Hey man, you know, just make sure you don't play on the vocals or or blah blah blah." So I learned that really young, man. Like never, right. never step on the vocals. Never, never do that. And so I learned that a long, long, long time ago. I mean, when I was a teenager. And so when I came to Nashville, I kind of already knew like that it wasn't all about me and my guitar solo. It was about supporting the song. And if somebody gives you enough rope, then you can take it and run with it. But, but you know, always have somebody ask you to play more, not less, you know? Ah, that's a, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, any, any other sort of early studio moments that you remember as like, like, um, building blocks like where somebody told you something or or you just like figured something out that was um not obvious to you before that point just 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 you know what it is it's really like even though i knew that and i had that that in the back of my mind like you know you got to be respectful of the of the song and the singer and the vocal and the lyric you know even with that in you know etched in my brain uh as the number one you know like foul if you do that you know Mm -hmm. and the number one thing to be uh conscious of especially in a in a town like nashville um you know even though you have that etched in your brain it's still something that people bring up i mean i would play i would play something you know in the studio and then uh you know the producer would say hey that's great that's the right approach but cut that in half Right. Play half of what you just played. And I'd go, wow, really? I'm playing it really simple. I mean, <laughs> I wouldn't say that out loud, but I, I, that's what I'm saying to, my, to myself. I'm going, wow, I thought I was playing it really simple. And then, then when you start realizing what they mean and how little mm-hmm. and effective a couple notes can really be, then you start kind of getting it. And it takes a long time, man. I mean, it takes a long time because growing up, you, you want to be able to have the horsepower like people in Nashville want to know that you can that you have the horsepower, but that you're not going to leave first gear, you know. Right. You know, they want to know that you can go as far and as crazy as as they want you to. But then they hardly ever want you to. But they don't want you to do it. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's not on their watch. Yeah. 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 They it's like we're not going to hire somebody that we think can barely cut it. We want to some we want to hire somebody we know that's overqualified and then just get them to do what we want them to do, you know? Right. Yeah, that does happen a lot. Um, so the way that you describe some of those some of those big country sessions like back in those days, it seems like it was pretty live. Is that the the case or were All you live? Like, yeah. Okay. Totally wow. live. And then you know, I didn't really do I'd get called to do some overdubs and stuff which when you're playing electric guitar, it's nice to do overdubs because, you know, I mean the the number one most fun is playing live with a excuse me playing live with a band and cutting records like that because the the takes are great the energy's up everybody's playing together everybody's in the moment you know all that stuff but when you come back and you do an overdub uh it's kind of it's kind of nice because you can sit in the control room you can take your headphones off you know you can you can you can have the time to work something out and really dial stuff in uh, because you have time and you don't have seven other people there waiting on you, you know? Right, right. And so it takes the pressure off. I like doing that, you know, because sometimes you can get a little nerve wracked in a, in a session. And a lot of times these days, like, you know, you go do a session and unless the budget is really huge, people are in a hurry and they, right. they, they come in and, and they'll, they'll want to do, 
like a half day and get five songs. And it's like, man, I don't care who you are. You're, you're hustling, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's not time to fuck around and get like crazy sounds and try different parts really when you're trying to do five songs in a half day. Yeah. Right. And, and, and man, that, and, and just the fact that like, you know, you're not going to get, you're going to get something good, but you might not get something great, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or, or but there's 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 exceptions to every rule. But I like to have the luxury of going in and spending two or three days, leaving your gear set up. You know, you can you can go have lunch. You come back. You work on three songs that evening. Uh, you know, or or one song that evening. Uh, you know, and then you come back the next day and you listen to what you did the day before. You you're really getting into making a a record. You know. Yeah, it's too bad that that seems like a luxury these days because that really is the, the greatest way to do it. And it, in the end, it ends up being quicker. I find when you when you're doing two or three songs in a day rather than four or five in in two hours because you know you 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 don't have to redo everything. You don't have to fix stuff. Like you just take a bit of time and you do it right. And you know you don't need to spend three months, but it's right. nice to spend three days. Yeah, and man, another thing that that another thing that I really like to do that that I notice a lot of people don't don't do anymore except the 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 real pros uh to me and it's and it's going back in you know when you go in and you're just starting to get going and you're cutting the first song and you're uh and you're you're you know we haven't even been into the control room to see what we sound like yet you know right and yeah. and you go through and you take like the first pass and and say you made a couple mistakes or it wasn't the right ending or or something you know wasn't perfect we're still working this out we're two or three takes away maybe but man like after the first rundown that's anywhere close to being decent I like to go, hey, man, let's go inside and let's go in the control room and listen to what we sound like. It makes a big difference. You know, no. And I've, I've been on sessions where people will sit there all day long and never even go in and listen. And I, right. and I, I just go at that point, I just go, well, I guess that's the vibe of this. We're just not giving a shit, you know, <laughs> I mean, and it kind yeah. of sucks because I, I mean, I don't care how I don't care if you're recording in somebody's garage in Hendersonville, go listen to it. Yeah. You know, that's why we're here. And it's a, that perspective shift is, is a big game changer as far as how you can approach things as a musician too, because you're just suddenly listening to it as a, as a recording rather than, than just hearing your part and whatever weird mix you've dialed into your headphones or whatever. It's like a different thing altogether. I like to do that. And I've noticed a lot of other guys that I, that, cause I thought, well, man, am I doing like, is it weird that I want to go in and listen to this or like, does that, <laughs> does that mean that I don't know what it sounds like in, in the headphones and that I'm not trusting something or, you know, you go through all these stupid insecurities where, you know, you, you think you're, 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 you know, you're not sure you're not doing something the right way or, or that somebody's going to judge you because you're doing something. Oh God, I can't do that because you know, that's like an inexperienced move or something. And then you hear these stories of like, you know, some of the most legendary people of all time and you hear what they did and, and you go, okay, you know, it's just all, we're just all here doing it. And every time we do it as a new, as a new experience, you know? Yeah. So I would always, I would always say if I ever had, you know, the, the, the balls to go, Hey guys, can we go in and listen and just see what we sound like? I, I'll start doing that more and more now because I think it's really important. 
And and being able to hear how your part interacts with you know the drummer and stuff like that, which yeah, you can't just, necessarily just, feel. Yeah, and just hear what your tone sounds like, and like, hey mm-hmm. man, what does what do these parts sound like from like w- with our hands off the fretboard? You know, what are some tricks that you've developed or things that you've learned over the years of of actually recording guitars? Now, like this this show isn't necessarily for guitar players, so I don't want to get super deep into like guitar gear or anything, but do you have certain ways that you like to set things up and sort of approach an electric guitar sound off the bat that are specific to you or that you've developed over the years? Yeah, for what I, for what I do, which is not a lot of rock stuff, you know, I don't, Mm -hmm. I use old Fender amps and usually small ones, you know, like I'll take a Princeton or a deluxe? I'll take like a Princeton reverb with a 12 inch speaker, an old one I have, and then I'll, um, an old amp, and then I'll take a old deluxe reverb. And, you know, between, you know, those two, and I won't take them both at the same time unless I know I'm going to be camped out somewhere for a while. If I'm just going to do something one day or, or something, I'll just throw my, I'll usually throw my Princeton in the car and, uh, and like a real small pedal board and a couple guitars. I, I'm at the point now where if somebody calls me to do something, they're, they're going to know that I'm not going to show up with like, you know, 20 guitars and 10 different amps and, you know, a pedal board the size of my coffee table. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm going to show up with like a 335 and a telly and maybe a bare tone. Uh, and if I really get excited, I might bring like a couple acoustics, a mandolin, um, a bare tone, a 335, a telly, and then whatever else I have. If I have something weird, like a Tysco or something, I might throw that in the car for slide or something like that. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a couple different directions I can go. I, I'm downplaying myself a little bit more than I should be probably because, I mean, I can go and and, and cover probably more ground than I'm giving myself credit for, but I've just become that kind of that kind of dude. I mean, I'm you know, if it's something rootsy, I know I can take that little pedal board, yes. those amps, and be fine, you know? Right, yeah. And and most other stuff, too. I mean, a lot of guys, like, I mean, I, I'm always surprised at, at what happens because I went down and worked with Kenny Greenberg uh, a couple months ago, and we recorded all this pretty cool instrumental stuff. Uh, and it's a long story why we're doing it, but we'll, we're going to do some more, too. And we had one of my favorite engineers uh, in, in Nashville. I've been really lucky to work with Chuck Ainley also, Amazing, yeah. Uh, and 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 on some records and stuff. And but this other guy too that I love to work with is Mills Logan, and uh, and he gets just really good guitar sounds. I mean, those guys are famous for their guitar sounds. But uh, Mills, it's like man, he 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 mics your guitar, and and you amp, and you go in and you listen to it, and it sounds incredible. It's inspiring in the headphones. And I always go, hey man, what do you do? He goes, I don't do anything. I'm not doing anything. And all the great engineers that you think that make your guitar sound like God, they go, I oh, mean, I'm not doing anything. <laughs> they don't do anything, man. They mic the amp and they turn it up. That's it. Right. They're not put uh they're not compressing it and they're not putting delay on it. And all the young guys, I go, I go, man, the, the guitar's just not sounding right. I'm like, Do you have a lot of compression on it? And they'll go, Yeah, I'm running it through the compressor and I'm like, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, hey man, can you just like turn all that stuff off and and just like you're turning this shit, I don't say this, but I'm I'm thinking to myself, it's like, dude, you're turning all this fucking gear on before you even have heard what my guitar sounds like. 
Exactly. And it's like, man, you you're you're doing what they told you to do at Belmont, not what you learned on on Music Row or or Barry Hill at all the studios, you know. And I mean, I'll tell you another badass guy is David Kalmuski, man. He works over at um, Addiction Studios. That I know Dave well. Yeah, he's a Can- he's, um, he, yeah, he's Canadian. He's a fellow Canadian, man. That guy knows yep. his shit. So he does all John Oates stuff. That so that's another another thing, man. Is after um, touring with Jerry and deciding to kind of come off the road a little bit. Uh, I was working with Sean Camp, and we'd go do some cool little stuff here and there. And we had 18 South, that band. We did a lot of stuff with them. I forget about that. Uh, that's a band that we put together with John Randall and Jesse Alexander, Jimmy Wallace, Larry Adamanuick, and Mike Bubb. We had this great, uh, like the pinnacle of a, Americana music, in my mm-hmm. opinion, was that band. And it, we just had so many different schedules and stuff. Our keyboard player, Jimmy Wallace, works with Joe Walsh and the Wallflowers and John yep. and Jesse are super successful songwriters that had three kids, and Mike is doing his thing. Larry's kind of retired. I was doing my stuff, and it was a great band, but but hard to keep everybody together. I was doing all this kind of fun stuff, you know, and I had my show at Acme that I did for three years, and then we did, uh, you know, we were kind of like the house band at the BMI Songwriters Festival where we did stuff, and I was just doing all these really cool, fun things. Uh, making new friends, you know, playing with great musicians, doing a lot of different stuff, and then just trying to figure out what was next. And then I got approached by Artist Works, did the full curriculum. Uh, people were asking me more about lessons. I started doing more stuff on YouTube. Uh, people started wanting to take Skype lessons and come over and do these like guitar immersion experiences where people will come over from Germany and all over the world and hang with me for three or four days and pay me a shitload of money and I'll show them all around Nashville. And, and teach guitar <laughs> cool. for two hours every day. Yep. So all this stuff just started morphing in. I Somehow back, you know, years ago, I got into social media and I figured that why not? Let's do it all. This can't hurt. And so that's turned into, you know, a decent amount of followers to where I have uh, a platform now where I can advertise my stuff without having to go out and tour. And so all this stuff just kind of happened at the right time, you know, and it just it's that. It's like Jerry Douglas told me a long time ago. He goes, man, this stuff's not really going to take off for you until you're in your 40s, you know? Mm-hmm. And I knew what he meant. He just meant that, you know, for one thing, you don't have the experience when you're that young. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's just going to take a while for all this stuff to connect, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, how did the John Oates gig come about? Okay, so I was out at Telluride with Jerry. We, p- we played Telluride every year. And uh, it's a whole other story there, but I mean, I, this could be a five-hour interview because <laughs> my life, it, there's been a lot of shit happen. But playing Telluride, I ended up on stage with the late-night jam, like the Sam Bush jam with like 15 people on stage or more. And like I'm playing electric guitar on one end of the stage, and then John Oates is on the complete opposite end of the stage. And I really didn't know who he was. Like I wasn't raised on on uh, uh, pop music, so I didn't know really anything about Hall and Oates or David Bowie or Prince or any of these names. Like I, I dude, I couldn't tell you one Prince song, "Purple Rain." Okay, there's that one. But I know how great these guys are. But I didn't know who these guys were. I didn't. I wasn't raised on that music. You know. Yep. I didn't know anything about Rod Stewart and all these legendary names that people know about. You know. And so anyway, so we get I get done playing and I took like a long guitar solo on some reggae tune or some bluegrass tune or something and and like uh we're all getting off stage and I'm walking down the stairs and John Oates is standing there talking to Jerry and Sam and and he's holding his guitar and uh and and 
and he stops me. And he goes, he goes, man, he goes, I don't know who you are, but he goes, he goes, I want you to have this. And he hands me his guitar and gives it to me. What? And I go, I go, what? I said, I said, man, really? I said, I can't take your guitar. He goes, man, I don't know what to do with this thing anymore. He goes, he goes, <laughs> he goes, he goes, I want you to have this. And, and I don't know why he did that, but I was like, I kept telling him, I was like, man, I can't take your guitar. And, and Jerry and Sam were standing there and they were going, yes, you can take it. <laughs> and so anyway, so he gives me this guitar. And then like the next day he calls and has me come over to his condo and we sat down and played some, some guitar together. And what I didn't realize was, First of all, that he was this huge, you know, gr- top grossing duo of all time, r- had written all these amazing songs and yep. and all this crazy stuff. And so, you know, I found that out later. But what I what I learned about John was that day was he was really into like Doc Watson and um, and uh, Mississippi, Mississippi John Hurt and all the guys from from down in the Delta who, you know, we love, you know, all that stuff. And so he was he was loving you know, finger picking and, and like all this really cool guitar stuff since he was a kid. So not a lot of people know that about him. So we played that day in his, in his condo and the next morning he goes, man, you want to go down and see this thing? So we, we ended up meeting Sunday morning and going down to the stage and heard, um, uh, uh, Oh God. Uh, the, the soul singer that died really big guy. Um, Solomon Burke, Solomon Burke. Hey, nailed it. Yeah, you nailed that. So thanks, because I was blanking. So John and me went down Sunday morning at like 9 o'clock to the main stage and sat on the side of the stage and watched Solomon Burke do his thing. And and so, man, we just kind of started being friends. And, and it took a long time. You know, John's he's not some, somebody that's going to, like, let you into his world in, in five minutes, you know? Right. He's a great guy, but, but it took a while. Like, he's probably like, he was this young fucker, you know? Yep. And so anyway, so over the course of the of, of, of like I've probably known him now for 10 years. That was probably 10 years ago. So we started touring together. We, we did some stuff as a duo. Oh, cool. We've done some we've done some stuff as a trio with a percussionist. We've got our band with with uh, with Oates and me and Steve Mackey and Josh Day. And then sometimes Russ Paul will come out and play with us. Sometimes Paul Franklin will come play with us. Sometimes Sam Bush will come play with us. But we've got this core band, and it's really great. And me and John have just become really, really great friends. I mean, he's, you know, he's the kind of dude that, like, um, I mean, we're always joking around and stuff. But we've just become really good friends. Like the other day, I, he's a big car guy, right? And I, so I bought a new car before this coronavirus hit, and uh, and I called him up. And I was like, man, John, I was like, what do you use to wash your car that won't scratch it up? You know, and blah blah. blah. I mean, we'll just, I could call him about anything and just talk as a, as two dudes talking, you know, and he's really become one of my best friends. And he's a, he's a fantastic human being, man. He's one of the coolest people ever. That's cool. He seems like a nice, nice guy. I've, I've never met him, but I've seen him around town a bunch. And, man, yeah. he's the best. He's one of the greatest, man. We've done all kinds of crazy stuff together with that band. I mean, getting to fly on private jets here and there and, all this, like, you know, eating at the greatest restaurants and staying at the greatest hotels, stuff that I never did with a Nashville band. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, like, it goes into a different category with him, man. He's just, he takes really good care of us, and, and we're, 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 we're honestly a band. I mean, even though it's him and his songs and stuff out front, it's a, it's a really fun band. That's cool. He probably, you know, he's probably really enjoying this stage in his career, too, and being able to kick back. and Yeah. Um, 
So how do you how do you approach making uh, the record with him? Like, was it was that a really live experience as well? That was the same thing. So we had kind of a big band with him too. We had um we had um uh, John, me, Steve, Josh, uh, uh, Russ, Paul, Sam, and Nat. So there was seven of us, and so. This was at, at Cal Muskie's place? This was at, at, at Addiction at Cal Muskie's place, yeah. And so we went in, and it was very much the same thing. You know, John would, would play the song on, on his guitar, and we would chart it out, and we'd go in, and we'd, we'd start playing the song. And then, you know, there, there's, there's a thing that I think a lot of the older cats are, are hip to also, and I learned this also because it's just kind of the way I'm, I approach music, which is a very um, – non-theoretical, non-thought-out way. I mean, it's just, it, it's a living, breathing thing. It's meant to have life. You know, you can kill it if you overthink it. I've seen it happen a, a gazillion times. And so those guys are hip, man. They know that to sit around in a studio and talk about a song is, is a total waste of time. Waste of time, <laughs> yeah. You can't, I mean, you got to maybe talk about a couple things like, you know, maybe like, okay, you know, I don't know, the, this or that, you know, this is the vibe I'm going for or whatever. But, but, you know, once you say that, man, let's, let's, let's don't sit here and like talk about the chart. It's not, we're not picking apart a, a calculus problem here. It's like, let's go in and put our hands on the instruments and start playing this song because mm-hmm. that's what's going to save you so much time. You're going to be able to figure it out. You know, you're going to hear what's going on instead of trying to hear it in your head on looking at a piece of paper in the control room. It's all about, uh, you know, his ability to to see the cast too, right? And like to make sure that if you've got all the great players and you trust everyone and everyone kind of gets along, that's the recipe there more than anything else that's going to make the, the record sound great. Yeah, and John John does know what he wants to hear. I mean, he might he might come in and go, hey – Hey guys, I'm hearing this line, but he's he's not just he won't come in and say, "Hey guys, I'm hearing a line on this on this can you can, can you guys do something?" He'll go, "Hey man, I've got the line and this is what it is," and he'll sing it. Right. And he knows what he want. He'll go, "Hey, can the mandolin and the cello do this thing together or the steel guitar and the cello or whatever it is or and he's got some arrangement things that he knows he wants to hear. And that's fine. It's like, okay, man, you know what you want. That's what we're going to play. Yeah. And then everything else kind of morphs around that. But, you know, the bigger the band, the less room you have. So, you know, the, the more people that are in there, I'll, I would just do, you know, there's, you know, some of these records I'm playing electric guitar on, you can barely hear it. But guess what? You don't really need to. I mean, if there's a little bed of some tremolo rakes or some chords under the chorus or something or the bridge that 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 kind of you know warms it up a little bit or or gives it some texture or fattens it up or whatever hey man that's all you need to do it doesn't need to be like you don't have to have like i don't always need to be leading the charge with like the big lick you know yeah yeah it's like i'm happy to like play a couple little rhythm fill little three note rhythm things or or a couple little things here and there it doesn't have to be uh i love you know, doing those little things and, and really forcing yourself to restrain, you know, uh, in a session like that, where, where he's probably not in a huge rush because he's got, you know, probably a half decent budget as far yeah. as budgets go these days. Are you keeping pretty much everything you're doing live? Um, are you overdubbing as well? Or what's your situation 
for a, for a record like John Oates. Yeah, so so with something like that, and this goes this this goes across the board for the other stuff we were talking about. You know, if I go, I'm kind of a one, you know, I'm not going to say one take, but I'm going to say top down. I'm mm-hmm. kind of a top down kind of guy where I'm not. Like I said earlier, I'm not really a chameleon where I can go in and like when I hear something, I know immediately like, okay, I'm going to layer a Strat, a, yeah. a Les Paul and a Telly and a, or a Gretsch or a 12 string. And I'm going to do all these parts and I know it all in my head already. And like, man, I, I'm such a live player and I come from such that like barroom background that I just don't think that way. I'm, I'm thinking like I'm playing the guitar and I'm going to play rhythm and lead and fills and everything down on one pass. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. That's kind of how I do it, and and for lack of a better, you know, more thought out way, that's how I do it. And and so if I get to the solo, I might play a solo. It might be good the first time. I might go over to five solos, you know, uh, or I might go uh, play rhythm under the solo as an overdub, so it doesn't lose the you know the rhythm part or. Or I might go out a second guitar part or something like that. So, but the 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 main one is the one from the top down. That yeah, I like to get. I like to go from the top down a lot. You know. Do you mess around with your sound that much, or is it pretty simple? You just dial it in and go. And and also, does like someone like Cal Muskie get involved in that, or does John get involved in in your actual tonality stuff? Yeah, sometimes they will, and they'll they'll give me little pointers and stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. But a lot of times, my instincts are pretty they're pretty good and, and pretty subtle. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, yeah. like I said, like, you know, pretty clean tones for the most part, unless something needs to be a little gritty. I'm, I'm not going to do any really uh, hard overdrive guitar sounds or anything, but, and the music that I'm playing doesn't lend itself to that much anyway. But, uh, but I might do like, if I'm going down and I'm playing like the, the intro uh, has some tremolo and delay on it or something. But then by the time you get to the solo, you need to be turning those effects off and hitting an overdrive. You know, I can do it on the fly, but a lot of times I'll, I'll, a lot of times I will approach something like that. If, if I'm doing some different sounds within one song, I'll, I'll kind of approach them in three different sections just so it lightens the load for me. Right. But I, I still try to keep a pretty, um, uh, live, approach as far as the final outcome is going to sound it's not going to sound like i did a ton of overdubs you know yeah 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 i wonder if we could just talk about your solo stuff as far as i know your last solo record is life after dark right yeah uh uh-huh i also wanted to ask you about your influences but one thing that i noticed like kicking off the record is buck dancer's choice which is a I mean, I know that from that Taj Mahal record from the early 70s that I love. And that's one of my favorite guitar pieces that I ever learned when I was a kid. And and then I heard you doing it and sort of riffing off and going off in different directions. Can you just tell me a little bit about your um, maybe some of your biggest influences and and how those come out in your own records? Yeah. Um, so the, the the thing I like about that record is, is I kind of did everything on this one that I didn't get to do on the first one. And I'm glad... I'm glad the first one is more stripped down because um, I kind of, you know, it kind of needed to be, uh, you know, the first record I ever did. I didn't want it to be full of guests and have mm-hmm. to look like I was supplementing my, you know, whatever lack of exposure with a bunch of famous names or, you know what I mean? Just yep, I yep, want totally. to kind of just do it as as stripped down as I as I could. And then um, this this last one has a lot of guests on it, and so. It also has some acoustic uh, music on there, 
And yep. so I'm, I'm kind of proud of that. I got to play some mandolin and, and acoustic guitar and stuff. And so, but anyway, um, so the Buck Dancers joined. So me and my uncle used to play that when I was a kid. He was a self-taught musician, still is. He lives in North Carolina. And uh, there was always instruments laying around. I'd hang, hang out with him. And he had a record player and a bunch of records. And I would, you know, play along to those. I'd learn Tony Rice stuff and Almond Brothers, Leonard Skinnerd, uh, you know, all this kind of stuff, you know. And so at the same time, we were playing John Prine songs, Bob Dylan songs. You know, my parents aren't musicians, but they were huge fans of Newgrass Revival. So like, I was hip to mm. Bela Fleck and Sam Bush and, and John Cowan and and all the people that are associated with those guys, you know, then Mark O'Connor and then, of course, got to know who Stuart Duncan was. And then all these acoustic guys that are monsters. I mean, I've been listening to that music since I was born. And then the rock and roll stuff was more like the names I mentioned. It was more like songwriters like Jackson Brown, Van Morrison, uh, Bob Dylan, uh, guys like that. It, it wasn't Leonard. It wasn't uh, Led Zeppelin and the Beatles. Right. I'm a little bit different in the fact that I never played any cover music as far as. Right. That makes a big difference, actually. I learned songs off records, and I and I played these songs with with my uncle and all our friends were musicians and stuff down there, so I was exposed to all this stuff. But I was learning fiddle tunes and stuff on the mandolin and the acoustic guitar, and then I'd go in and plug in the electric guitar and play along to, like, Johnny Winter. I got a little bit of both, you know, so... But I didn't learn any – I never had to play any cover bands. I was never in any cover bands on the Gulf Coast because there were so many songwriters down there, you know? Oh, cool. Yeah. And so uh, due to that bar and that festival that I talked about earlier, you know, a lot of these guys had relocated because they knew they could work at the Floribama, live on the beach, and yeah. they're living like this bohemian lifestyle on the Gulf Coast, which if you go down there, it's pretty slow moving. Mm-hmm. And so uh, – and so I got to play with all these songwriters and, and I, I, I never, I never learned, you know, all the Beatles songs. I never learned Led Zeppelin riffs. I never learned, uh, you know, any, any of that music. I, I just, you know, any cover music that we played was all from, you know, like the forties or fifties. It was all old blues or jazz songs, you know, or they were originals and I was coming up with my own stuff on them, you know, it was good. I'm, I'm proud of the fact that, that, that I had that really kind of unique upbringing as far as the music background, but, yeah. but in a town like this, it would have served me well if I had a little bit of that, like nobody talked about session musicians or anything like that down on the Gulf coast. I mean, I didn't know that you could make, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, you know, sitting in a studio playing guitar. I, I, that didn't occur to me. I just heard the music, you know? Yeah. And so I wasn't thinking of like, you know, I wasn't planning and scheming like, okay, I'm going to learn how to play like all these different guys. I'm going to learn like what gear they use and how they came up with these parts. And like, I didn't get into the history of music. I just wanted to play music. You know? Yeah. One other thing that I noticed about that record is like when you play acoustically, like crossing the bridge on that tune, you're like right in there with great bluegrass pickers too. Like how much, how much was bluegrass part of your upbringing and like did you sit down and like learn tony rice songs it sounds like you must have at some point yeah i did no it was a big part of my of my upbringing i mean i I, there was a lot of bluegrass there was a lot of parties that my parents took me to when i was a little kid that that revolved around music with people sitting in a big circle i went to a lot of bluegrass festivals 
Uh, I played in some bluegrass bands locally. Um, and of course, I mean, that's part of the reason why I was able to play with Patty and Jerry, because I did, I can, I know how to play that music the right way, you know? Yeah. Yep. I, I know how to play bluegrass mandolin and bluegrass guitar. Uh, I mean, my chops ebb and flow with that because I do play so much electric. Yeah. And the reason why I love playing acoustic instruments, but the reason why I don't really like playing them out live is because they don't sound good plugged in. Yeah, I know what you mean. You know? So, I mean, a lot of the reason why I love playing electric guitar is because I know I'm kind of in, I'm in control of my tone more when I, when I show up to a gig or a session, you know? Well, uh-huh. let me take that back. A gig. Sessions are completely different. I love playing acoustic instruments in the recording studio. Right, right. Because they'll, they'll, of course, they sound better there than they're going to sound anywhere else. But, um, but yeah, bluegrass was a big part of it. I mean, I spent a lot of time uh, sitting in front of the TV with a VHS homespun Tony Rice video and learning <laughs> Gold I mean, Rush, learning Gold Rush, and learning note for note uh, all those songs. And even before that, I was learning uh, his stuff off the records, and you know, and learning some David Grisman quintet stuff, and learning some Sam Bush stuff, and and really um, kind of copping his feel for the rhythm chop and the the weight of the pick that he uses and using the sloped shoulder of the pick yep, and, yep. and being able to have that real loose right hand and that kind of like not sloppy but not real stiff approach either. Yep. You yep. know. Um, it's all in the wrist more than the – Yeah, it's all in the wrist. And so, yeah, that was a big part of it. And, man, to be honest with you, that's probably why – uh, I'm able to play the electric guitar uh, in that way of kind of like down, up, down, right hand. Everybody says, man, your right hand is really, really good. And I mean, you know, I don't know if that's true or not, but I've definitely, you know, been able to uh, have some chops with my right hand on the electric guitar, probably because of playing so much acoustic uh, music when I was younger, you know? Yeah. And did, were there periods of time where you just played acoustic? Like, it sounds like you must've dedicated yourself to like playing that style because you, as you say, like, you're not, you're not messing around. You sound like you fit right in when you're playing with those guys. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, and I did. Yeah. When I was younger, uh, it was kind of weird cause it's hard for me to remember back that far, but it seems like I was playing a, a lot of acoustic and a lot of, of mandolin at some point <clears throat> and going and sitting in a lot with local bands and stuff like that too, as a kid. And then, but at the same time I was playing electric guitar and going and sitting in with some blues bands and stuff down there also. So they were both kind of, they were both kind of coming up equally on, on, on both sides, you know? Yeah. Okay. That's cool. But I just, I, I got more, I got, I, I was able to go out and play more uh, acoustic music for a while there because of the nature of the different bands that were playing down there and stuff. What about a tune like, um, shag Rugburn? That sounds to me like a Jimmy Smith kind of tune. I mean, yeah. What was your jazz influence? Were you listening to those kind of records like the West Montgomery, Jimmy Smith stuff? And, and, and what was your jazz influence growing up? Yeah. So back then I didn't know anything about jazz. I didn't know anything about Jimmy Smith or Wes Montgomery. I mean, I had a couple guys that were kind of, you know, that kind of showed me a couple licks on how to play over uh, some changes, like how to approach a two five one or something like that. So I was starting to kind of, I was kind of starting to kind of get hip to a little bit 
on the plan over changes kind of concept. Yeah. And uh, of course that's something that I've worked out a lot, you know, through the years too. But, um, uh, the jazz was, was, was there. I mean, my, one of my, uh, my other uncle, my dad's middle brother was more of a jazz fan. He had some, uh, jazz records and some John Luke Ponty records and stuff like that. So I was getting a little bit of a, of that influence, some world music, you know, that we'd listen to African and Cuban music, which I really, really love. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as like the straight ahead jazz stuff, I didn't really get into that a lot until I moved up here. Mm. And, and I really got into, uh, uh, you know, listening to some classic records. What were some big ones for you? You know, I, I don't know if there was anything specifically that changed anything specific that changed my life or anything. I mean, kind of all of it together. I mean, I'm not really, uh-huh. I couldn't tell you one record, but, okay. uh, but yeah, just all the Jimmy Smith stuff, of course, going through my Danny Gatton phase, that kind of hit me to some, some stuff, you know, um, uh, Joey DeFrancesco, uh, of course, you know, Jimmy Smith being like, you know, the Bible for B3 organ. And then of course that'll turn you on to West Montgomery. If you don't know who he is, of course, now I'm, He's my favorite jazz, of all the jazz guitar players. I think Wes Montgomery's my favorite. But yeah, man, the jazz thing is like I'm not a jazz musician, but I have the I can I can make it feel and I can make it swing. Like I know how to cop that feel. Yeah, you can. And the rhythm, the rhythmic stuff. I know like the Freddie Green uh, chord kind of stuff. I, I got hip to that when I was younger, and so I got bits and pieces of this stuff throughout my whole life. But I've never really. I'm not like a serious jazz guy, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, totally. And how do you approach writing tune like like that commodity tune or something that's really melodic, but it's kind of you know there's some different influences and some of it's yeah. a little more out there. How do you write tunes like that? Do you come up with a melody and then sort of work backwards and do a, a chordal harmony, or what's your process? The chords are kind of built into that. They're they're coming right out of the chord positions, mm-hmm. and so. I'll just sit around and noodle around. Like I don't, people were asking how I practiced the other day. And I, I said, man, I really don't practice anymore. It's more like just picking up your instrument and starting to play something, yep. you know, and come up with something that, that, that works or, or, you know, coming up with this style to where you kind of, you know, you're, you're playing some, some single note stuff, but you're also playing the bass notes so you can hear the chord harmony behind it and, and really kind of trying to get into making more music with it. And so I would just come up with these little, little ideas by noodling around and going, Oh, that's kind of cool. Maybe that could be something. And maybe that could go to this. And then you're hearing where it could go. And you're kind of thinking too, like, okay, how can I make this not be boring? You know, uh, cause I don't want to, you know, none of us want to listen to, to anything that's going to bore us. So I'm trying to be conscious of like what I'd like to listen to if I was going out and hearing somebody else play, you know? And, and what about like arranging it with the band? Like you don't really have a weekly gig or anything where you can flush that stuff out. So do you do you get a chance to rehearse with with guys that you're playing with before you record? Or a lot you- of those tunes we, we we were playing live because me and Michael and Pete had a trio for a while before he got really busy with Joe Bonamassa. We would play together and and we had some stuff worked out uh, that we would play live every once in a while and then go into the studio and record a couple of those things early on and then. On this last project, uh, same thing. You know, we had some tunes that <clears throat> that we'd been playing um, with Steve Mackey and uh, and and some different guys, Pete Abbott on drums. That he knows all my songs, and so when we went in, we kind of knew. You know, the rhythm section kind of knew the tunes, and then I had uh, 
uh, Matt Rawlings came in and played some keyboards on a couple things. And then uh, Charles Treadway played on the Shag Rugburn tune. And so, you know, some of it came, you know, I booked Sound Emporium, I think, for like three or four days. And and we just went in there and worked some stuff out, you know. But the rhythm section knew a lot of that stuff. What, like, what's next for you? Like, I, I don't know what you're doing in all this downtime, but uh, do you have, um, like, another record in the works? Or, what, like, what's happening next on, on your horizon? Man, I'm, 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 just, I'm just continuing to do what I've always done, and that's just survive. <laughs> and my mom says, every time I tell her that, I, I, I go, Mom, just, you know, survive. And she goes, no, you're not. You're thriving. <laughs> yeah, thanks, mom. So I'm like, thanks, mom. But but she's right, man. I mean, you know, all this stuff I've, I've done here, I, it's I've been really lucky, man. I've been I've been able to to have you know a really great career here. It's been different. It's been a different career. I mean, yeah, it has. It's it, but it's it's been really great. I'm proud of it. And uh and 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 man, you know, I've been really lucky. I bought some rental property here ten years ago. Uh, in Berry Hill that I rent out and that pays for my mortgages on my property I have here. I live in East Nashville, but I, I have some property in Berry Hill, uh, two buildings that I bought. That that enables me to kind of not have to, you know, I, I say this too, it, it's more important to know what you don't want to do than it is to know what you do want to do because at least you can eliminate that shit off your list, right? Yeah, totally. So, that's helped me kind of free up a little bit. You know, that was a smart move uh, back then. I'll say. And then, uh, you know, getting into the online stuff with Artist Works has been a great income stream and an amazing company and and just an incredible thing there. That's enabled me to stay home um, and not have to go out and tour with uh, any music that I don't want to be a part of. Do you like the teaching process? I love it. I love it. Uh-huh. It's been great. Yeah, you're really good I've at it. I've met a, well, thanks, man. And I've met a ton of great people doing it, and uh, it just keeps it keeps growing. And man, you know, I'd like to do some more recording. Um, I always look forward to to working with John Oates and Sean Camp and those. Uh, bands that we have that are just so much fun and a really good fun platform for me to be able to play a lot and um and you know man i mean just uh, i have some ideas for some uh some things that i want to start here in nashville uh as soon as this uh, corona stuff kind of frees back up uh there's some clinics and stuff i want to do here this guitar immersion experience thing that i'm that i'm working on behind the scenes that's going to be a pretty cool thing when we get all fleshed out I mean, man, I, I'm I'm really grateful. I'm I'm able to make a good living here and not have to do a whole lot of work. You know, I'm, I have a lot of free time. I'm I'm I feel like I'm kind of I'm not going to jinx this by saying this, but I, but I'll, a lot of times I feel like I'm kind of semi-retired. You know, that's awesome. <laughs> I, I like to travel. I mean, I went to Italy last year for like three weeks by myself, and uh, we went to South Africa uh, not too long ago. Me and my mom and dad, we we uh, went over there. I. I technically was teaching this clinic over there, but it turned into like basically a vacation. And, and, uh, I'm trying to figure out where I want to go this year when the Corona stuff lightens up. Cause after all this shit, man, I'm definitely going somewhere for a couple of weeks just to chill out. Yeah. That's a good plan. And so, you know, I want to go to Spain. Uh, I want to go check out Spain. Eventually I'd like to go check out somewhere really exotic. I've never been to Asia. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I've never been to Japan or, or Thailand or anywhere like that. Sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I like to do, man. I'm a single dude. I'm not married. I don't have any kids. And I just hang out here at my house in East Nashville. And, and that's that's kind of what I enjoy doing, man. Living the dream, man. It's pretty fun. I am. I, I always say that I'm going to write a song called Living the Dream is Killing Me. <laughs> <laughs> well, Guthrie, thanks, man. I, I, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time today to talk to me. And I'm, I, I, I know people will be really excited to hear from you. And, and uh, you got, you've done some really amazing things. Thanks a bunch, man. Thanks, Guthrie. Take care, man. All right. See ya. Thank you for listening, everybody. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Guthrie. I had a blast bringing it to you and we'll see you next week for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. See you then. Thank you for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. You can visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. As always, I would like to thank Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver, BC for his help with research, and we'll see you next month for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.